Today, I want to throw back to a blog article I wrote some while back. It's particularly relevant and sadly poignant in light of an already deadly 2017 when it comes to exploratory travel and in particular mountaineering. Mainstream media picked up on the loss of the iconic and well-liked Swiss mountaineer Yuli Steck in the Himalaya recently, but there have been many others across the globe. So here's what I had to say a year ago. I'm always fascinated to see how the angle I take, or indeed anyone takes, at a single moment can reflect differently when reread months or years later. What's up with the polar expedition world over the past few years? It's a far cry from the excesses of the mid-2000s Playboy bubble. We've most certainly not seen a return to the cradle of modern exploratory expeditions that grew through the 1990s. Further, the financial crash, retreat and reset of six or seven years ago is at an end, a time when funding for polar travel was decimated. Whether another crash is now upon us in Brexit Britain is too large a topic for this post. The last 12 months or so have been brutal for those who follow journeys in the coldest parts of our world. For a group who takes more than their fair share of risks, we aren't used to death. The world of polar travel has a sister discipline linked by ropes, cold camping and endurance. It's mountaineering. Since its first days, that community has had to deal with the sheer objective danger of many of the situations they find themselves in. From rocky crags to frozen icefalls to vast 8,000-metre Himalayan peaks, the sombre reality that dozens of climbers and mountaineers lose their lives every year is ingrained. It doesn't stop most, but it's at the back of their minds. It's reality. Naturally, equipment, training and therefore survival rates have improved enormously over the last century. Historically a pastime with a near hippie culture and a relatively accessible entry barrier, plus the ability to climb on a low budget, popularity has boomed recently and mountaineering has almost entered mainstream culture as a proper, well, sport. It's also the darling of the trendy urban wellness crowd. Us polar bunch have long since diverged from them. Costs remain astronomical, partly because you can't jump in a car and drive to the Peak District to get polar conditions. Participation has also stayed low and the gap between it and climbing is widening, both in numbers and culture. It is for this reason that many have been so polaxed by the events of 2015 and 2016. The polar community isn't tight-knit. Save for a few neighbours who may know each other, former teammates or guiding collectives, we're all spread thinly around a limited part of the globe. Most are based in Canada, Northern Europe and Russia. Many are lone wolves and others, often the soloists, actively shun cooperation or community. It attracts alpha types, and with that comes competition. Sometimes you're competing for the, the same shrinking pot of funding cash too. Isolation breeds divergence in skills and equipment too, meaning that soon a polar traveller might become manifestly unable to work with another who has different routines. As such, it can end up being fairly fragmented. Regardless of this, though, there is an understanding shared by those who have experienced true, committed, independent cold-weather travel. It might be a grudging or aloof respect, a sort of metaphorical nod of the head from a home thousands of miles away. When someone is injured or loses their life, it doesn't take long for memories to surface of moments when you yourself have had close calls. It's sobering and it connects, even if that person is a stranger 
when they are a friend, it hurts to the core. In April of 2015, I was in Canada. Having sustained a head injury travelling in the polar high Arctic region, I was recuperating in the south, in Ottawa and Montreal. News broke as I returned from the gym, mid-rehabilitation, that tragedy had struck comparatively close to where I'd been in the north. Two polar travellers on a scientifically focused man-hauling journey had apparently perished. As the details followed slowly, the full horror grew. The order of events was not known, but one and then both of the polar skiers had fallen through thin ice. An emergency beacon had been activated, but no trace remained of either. Their bare alarm dog was seen from a search helicopter sat patiently and heartbreakingly by the hole in the ice. Their names, both Dutch, were the worst shock. The first was Mark Cornelissen, a veteran polar traveller who I had not met but had only heard of it in the most positive terms as a professional and advocate for scientific integration for expeditions. The second was Philip Derue. Only 30 years old, he and I had first met a couple of years before and were musing plans to work together. Whilst the committed mission by the RCMP, the Mounties, and other authorities to reach the site of the accident recovered both Mark's body and Kimmick, their still healthy dog, Philip was still missing. One of them had activated a beacon, but it was too late. They had been exploring an area of sea ice renowned for thin ice and dangerous conditions. Fast forward to the close of January 2016. A British polar skier of significant note, a man of formidable character as a full career soldier, had succumbed to a serious infection whilst making a solo, unsupported crossing of the Antarctic continent. That is the area excluding the ice shelves. Henry Worsley was only a marathon away from completion when his stamina gave in entirely to the illness and he requested an evacuation. It was too late and doctors in Argentina were not able to save his life. His tragic end became headline news and I was sad to see publicity-hungry polar types who'd barely met Henry clamour to be interviewed. His family and close friends must have found this very difficult to stomach. My final communication with Henry was when he was in Chile and about to fly south for his journey. He lamented having to have a solitary final beer and thanked me quite unnecessarily for some minor assistance to set up satellite communication gear. I promised him a non-solitary beer once he returned home. In less than a year, the global total of a few dozen professional polar travellers had lost three. Explorer fatalities aren't unheard of, and of course native populations of Arctic, Alaska, Canada, Greenland and Russia suffer losses too, but this is not unexpected if you consider the thousands of people who live in remote communities the year round. The last person prior to lose their life on a classic polar expedition, that is a point A to point B journey with a novel geographical aim, and not a static science camp or an adventure tourist visit, was the Finnish Frenchwoman Dominique Arduin. In 2004, during the period of rapid expansion in privately funded polar expeditions, a Russian helicopter flew north from a restricted refuelling stop in Arctic Siberia with the intention of launching the expeditions of a number of North Pole hopefuls. Most were soloists. A full-length North Pole expedition demands that the skier steps off from land onto the sea ice, but to their collective dismay, reduction in ice thickness had left the Russian Cape mostly free of ice. What remained was mobile, thin, and a death trap. 
Faced with the indignity of instantly compromising their ideals and purest view of correct start points, it was agreed for the helicopters to fly to the edge of safe polar pack ice from where they could begin their ski journeys. At a particular point, exactly when is unclear, Ardua, not of character famed for her diplomacy, stated her disgust at the new plan and demanded a shoreline start, which she was granted. She was never heard from again and her body was not recovered. The years spanning the millennium through to today have not been clear of other tragedies, again not taking into account locals perishing while snowmobiling into village or on dogsled hunting trips. A British Antarctic survey biologist was drowned by a leopard seal in the Antarctic in 2003. A British teenager was killed by a polar bear in 2011 after a bungled Svalbard youth tour. And a 2013 charity trekker in an inexperienced team was killed by a catabatic storm on the Greenland ice sheet. These examples aren't exhaustive and were all harrowing in their own ways. What sets the recent losses aside, though, was the fact they could happen to any of us. Animal attacks and superstorms are, whilst always a risk, uncommon. These earlier catastrophes also bore the dreadful tags of being to some extent due to human errors that were entirely avoidable. Mark, Philip and Henry, though, were operating within fairly typical bounds, albeit on highly committed journeys on sea ice and alone on a vast ice sheet. Every single one of us who travels on ice, whether on the frozen sea ice or glacial ice, can excruciatingly recall dozens of occasions where it so easily could have been us. That moment when the thin ice cracks beneath your skis, a fragile snow bridge breaks, or you wonder if the footsteps outside the tent are a bear or a dog. Why is this shift happening? Numbers are far too low for statistical certainty, but something has changed in the polar expedition world, something in its culture. To answer this, we need to rewind back to those very approximate eras of polar journeys. This is again those by Europeans, Americans, Southern Asians and so on, temporary visitors and not natives. Through the early centuries of polar exploration and through to the end of the Cold War, there has been in most cases a government influence to expeditions. If not explicit official expeditions by militaries or national administrations, at the very least they had some central funding or royal endorsement. Posturing and sticking flags in things began to lose its gloss throughout the 1990s, and so the private or sports era of polar journeys began. Guided, packaged expeditions for novices were still rare, but aspiring modern explorers found their new patrons amongst the ranks of the burgeoning financial or business services industries, many of whom who had sponsorship money to burn on even fairly spurious challenges or vicarious alpha activities. The 1990s saw the fine Stroud attempt at an Antarctic crossing, which failed on the Ross Ice Shelf, the Weber Malakoff North Pole return triumph, and also the rise of Norwegian Borger Auslan's stellar career. Astute business people, for example from Adventure Network International, Polis and Ken Boracare, cottoned on early and provided logistics via aircraft for these sponsor logo adorned, well heeled polar travellers, albeit still small in number. The commercial era of polar travel matured around the millennium, a few years behind the entrepreneur climbers making large sums of money facilitating high-altitude novice mountaineering, the sort that led to the 1996 disaster, immortalised in Krakow's Into Thin Air and the recent movie Everest. 
By the mid-2000s, dozens of journeys were being made each season by teams from a multitude of countries. Guides became indispensable but oft-forgotten appendages to make up for the vast reducing experience levels offered by wealthy faux explorers. Creativity and novelty in terms of routes and ambitions began to suffer too. Standard routes were established along known safe paths and short, bite-sized alternatives were marketed to those with more money and drive to clinch a trophy than they had, they had free time. The journey itself or accumulation of hard-won skills no longer mattered. Only the prize and tag of intrepid explorer did. Accidents and fatalities were, in proportion to the massive increase of people on the ice, sometimes over a dozen teams a year, remarkably sparse due to the sanitisation of routes and hard-working guides. This was the era of the Playboy Explorer, and it was short-lived. With the 2008 crash, the money dried up. Investment banks stopped writing blank cheques for the sheer hell of it, or because the expedition contained their work friend's son. Heavy drinking, overweight trust fund businessmen were no longer launching dubious expeditions with their logo sporting one penguin violating another. Yes, that really happened. The transient industry that built around the commercial polar boom has now begun to switch over to easier prey, even as economies were recovering. The sponsorship free-for-all is most certainly over, and the bulk of aircraft operators have backed out of the market. What we have now ended up with, due to the cash drought, are fewer polar visitors from across all the categories, be they world-famous polar explorer or novice tourist on a champagne flight. So why are fatalities happening more where the numbers at risk are reducing? I believe there are two causes, and neither have simple cures. The first, and perhaps minor one of the two, is the bonkers insurance climate for remote location travel we now deal with. Put simply, in 2008 I was insured for comprehensive search and rescue, medical and equipment coverage for less than £100 per month. I shopped around for the best quote. Today, it is necessary to almost beg an insurer, usually based abroad as most UK firms have new no-polar policies, to cover a highly exclusive list of occurrences with strict payout caps. It can now, if you get it at all, cost £40 per day. This is a direct response by the market to a decade of frivolous evacuation claims and novice explorers using rescue helicopters like taxis. The fallout from this clampdown is that people either travel with underwriting that won't cover a lot of likely accidents, or simply travel uninsured, hoping for the best or that a foreign nation will foot the bill. The unsurprising result is of course that people might delay calling for help, or simply don't at all, for fear of being bankrupted by a medical evacuation and rescue bill. The dangerousness of this stalemate doesn't really need spelling out and has no clear remedy. Insurers are in the business of maximising profits and minimising risk, and polar expeditions in 2016, because of the recent behaviour of some, satisfy neither of these criteria. Sensible polar travellers now either reluctantly work uninsured, place bonds on their house, or pay vast premiums. The second possible explanation is more a simple observation of reality, perhaps just why the trend appears to be the case now relative to the past. I believe that the awful events of the last year or so, and the likelihood for it to continue, are merely symptoms of a new era. As I write this, already six people have died on Everest this season, and it's just a few more months until the next November to May polar peak activity. 
the post-Playboy era of modern polar travel. If the vast majority of polar ventures in the 2000s were on known routes with professional guides and, in short, more benign windows of weather when temperatures and ice are amiable, then safety will reflect that. Those taking on the uncertainty of major firsts or new routes over unprecedented distances were a tiny percentage. Often they were made impotent by being outcompeted for funding by publicity stunts, which got more column inches. Today, with the commercial and trust fund side of the industry dipping abruptly, those playboys and playgirls have moved on to easier games. Left are the hard core of professionals and those perennials passionate about and committed to the polar regions. Unsurprisingly, these people naturally seek the harder routes in the more hazardous seasons. The chance of your time being up is, simply, more likely if you choose to operate at that level. The price of admission. So, we will see more of the horrendous news we've had to absorb. Those of us in the polar community must rally to counter the insurance absurdity by building trust with quality underwriters, or even develop an underwriting framework of our own with enhanced due diligence by experts. The new era and what that means about who is doing what and how dangerous it is, is more complex. It would be, to me, wrong to do anything but encourage the exit of the time wasters and return of the professionals. Modern explorers, whether they are there for science or endeavour. Some of our tiny group may succumb, but they do so living their lives with a verve and focus that makes them the truly privileged. What we can and must do is continue to innovate equipment, routines, communications, medical training and rescue procedures that keep people alive in a place that is entirely indifferent to human survival. Well, we've reached the end of today's podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We're still in the early stages of this podcast, so please, please, if you enjoyed it, spread the word via social media or even through old-fashioned word of mouth. Don't forget to subscribe so my next podcast appears automatically for you. Of course, you can follow whatever I'm up to on Twitter, at Alex Hibbert, via my website, which is alexhibbert.com. And finally, my books are available online, in bookstores, or direct from my website. Thanks so much again for climbing aboard in the early stages of my podcast, and I'll have the next one with you as soon as I can.